When do you say the process for making a film starts? Like when you have that first meeting with someone that isn't yourself <laughs> and to kind of pitch that idea? Or is it when you actually like start writing and making the film? Because in that case, we haven't started making the film yet. <laughs> that was terrifying to think. I feel like maybe a lot of people have different ideas of what um, of how the filmmaking process works. Like I imagine a lot of people think the director just comes up with everything and then... It's their film, which no, it is... Just happens. It happens. You know, it just happens. Welcome back to the Refined Glass Diary podcast. I feel like that'll do. <laughs> I feel like that's a good intro. That was not a very performative voice. Uh, who does? Neither of us have performative voices. That's fair. Uh, we're going to be talking about the process of making a film as a student, because that's all that we know. Well, that's all I know how to do. There are certain things about the film that we have to do because it's part of our university degree. But there's also certain elements that you have to do just because it's a film and you need those things. So one of those is like finding funding, which is for both of them, but mainly just because making a film without money is hard. <laughs> yeah, making a film for zero budget is nigh on impossible. And zero budget in, like, and you see this thing about zero budget films all the time. And they do have a budget of over £500 every time, at least. So it's like, that's £500 I don't have currently. Yeah. And filmmaking, I'd say more than most, like, art is more expensive. And I don't know whether that's just because that, like, you mostly have more people working on a film than, like, other art forms. So you have to pay those people, but also have a space big enough for those people to be in yeah and as well in general we've got to a point in within the meta of filmmaking where making films for nothing doesn't work anymore like we're at a yeah. point in this kind of uh in in, in a postmodernist way of like filmmaking is at a point where we expect a certain level of production quality and you can't do that for free anymore like you cannot and with art it's like there's always waves like especially like regular art art you know drawing art for want of a better word um you have you know these these movements of you know completely counterculture and punk art constantly in filmmaking it's less so the case because of the way that the ownership of the media works not like in a conspiracy kind of way it's just that <laughs> To make a film, you need to get a camera. To get a camera, you need to pay money for it. It's so not you like... need the money to... Yeah, and cameras yeah. cost significantly more than paintbrushes and canvases do. Yeah. I think also, like, we're very lucky that we can use... The uni's, like, equipment is really good. But then we have to find the money to do all the production design, uh, which we will talk more about in another podcast. But production design, I think, is the one of the most expensive elements... For a student film, at least. <laughs> yeah. Especially when your like your regular kit budget is paid for yeah. pretty much. Like we get the lights, sound, camera, you know, you get most of the, the 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 stuff that you need to make a film, but then you have to make everything else. And for our film we're wanting to build an, a set. Which is on us, to be fair. Which <laughs> is semi my fault. Um that I was like, we're not gonna use a real location because you know, where are we going to find in Manchester that looks like LA? And I found out there's an entire, like, 
part of Warrington designed after Los Angeles. For the set, I think it is both a blessing and a curse in that we have more freedom because we can do what we want is our set. Mm. We could like burn it if we wanted to. We could, let's we could physically destroy it at yeah. some point in the film, which is Ooh. a nice idea. Yeah. But not that we're going to, just that we can. we can. And we can paint it whatever colour we want, which is, I think this is the thing that a lot of student films fall into. The bane of your existence are plain white walls. <laughs> This is so boring. But the number of films that are shot on in rooms with plain white walls because that's all they can get. And for some reason, everybody on Airbnb has plain <laughs> white walls. And you, you're yeah. doing location recce's. And the locations that don't have plain white walls, you have to pay for. Like, in first year, we made a film um, set in an art gallery. We couldn't get an art gallery because we had to pay over 500 quid to use the space for two hours. No That's way. not enough time to shoot an entire film. So we said, screw that. We're going to make our own gallery at uni. Terrible idea. <laughs> putting, trying to put paintings on a curved wall yeah. is surprisingly difficult. Who'd have thought? And two of them fell and smashed, and they weren't my paintings. See, most of our budget went on getting the paintings hired. Um, and oh an artist friend of mine had kindly donated their work to me, and I broke two of them. So that was bad. We're not going to do that, because we're going to have our own set, have our own walls, but that does require us to build that set and uh, have it be safe for people to be around. This is something we've never done before as well. Yep. well. We'll remind everybody that we've never built a set before and our production designer has never built a set before but he comes from a set designing lineage so we it's have in his blood yeah <laughs> it's in his blood we have faith in him so yeah the process of filmmaking is finding a location i'd say is is one of the early elements of the film well a lot of films as i was saying that they're let down by like bad locations like Locations that aren't suitable for the theme or the tone of the film. And a lot of student films just go, we'll do it in a student flat. Yeah. And student flats, as much as students don't think they have a distinctly student vibe, they have a distinctly student-y, flat-y sort of look to them. Oh, yeah. And when your main audience is fellow students, they'll go, I know where that is. I've been there. That is also where my flat is. Yeah. And you kind of end up in these positions where it's like you're telling the story about gangsters but it's set in peel park campus yeah um okay so yeah recceing and location scouting are the first steps in like getting a good film off the ground in my opinion after making several bad films yeah um i mean also part of that is having some form of not necessarily script but some form of written down idea of the film to then do a breakdown for those of you who don't know what a breakdown is. It's, I don't know if I can describe this without using the word breakdown, it's quite hard. It, it's pretty, <laughs> I think, uh, a script breakdown is pretty self explanatory. You go through the script and you pick out everything you're going to need, yeah, on every day. That was a very good in relation to your calendar slash schedule and what costumes needed. Costume is another one, yeah, that's killer, I think. A lot of student films try go, try be a bit grand to start with. 
and mm. they they do multiple costume they do multiple like days of shooting but in the same costume so it looks like their characters just never change and you can get away with that a little bit but a lot of student films want to tell a story of like this happened this year and then two years ago this happened but they're wearing the same costume same haircut say they look exactly the same we're, we're going back to this production design that really kind of sells a film yeah because if the world isn't believable then it's not gonna work for the audience they either need to suspend their disbelief and go i accept this as a world that is happening or fully believe this world is real Mm. um which is very hard to do when you don't have all the resources so one of the podcasts i listen to a lot is the good place podcast about the tv show the good place and them talking about how much like they spend like not even just money but like time on uh, finding locations, all the different like editing techniques. I'm like, this is fascinating. But also, I don't have that kind of money. Uh, like they went to Paris, so that's we can't do that. I wish, I wish, like I wish we could shoot it all in LA, like because yeah. it would save us the trying to recreate the lighting. Because that's I think that's the thing that scares me the most. We got one shooting day where we're shooting outside. Yeah, and. The sun in and I know it's the same sun, but it's different. Okay, <laughs> there's there's two suns. There's the one that shines over Manchester in March, and there's the one that shines over LA in June, and yeah, it's very very different. We can't shoot in June. No, it's past the deadline. Sadly, <laughs> uh, that's something that's frustrating as well. That yeah. there's a deadline, and. I know it's because of the way the student calendar works, but the time you really want to be shooting outside... Is summer. Is summer, and you don't have time to do that, so everybody's films are shot inside. That's something that's pretty unique to student films, is that student creativity knows no bounds, but time does, and yeah. the the weather does, and especially shooting in Manchester. Good God, the number of shoots that have been ruined by rain. I, like, I don't know about you, but there was... In second year, start of second year, we, we were making a film called Sleepyhead, which is, you know, online if people want to look at it. I, I really enjoyed making it. And um, I was in charge of the lighting on that. And the entire film is set in late spring, early summer. And it's about a young man who keeps going into periodic comas and missing 20, like 20 year segments from his life. The th- opening sequence was meant to be shot like kids riding their bikes. We turned up to the shoot at this uh, National Reserve Park. We had all of the kit ready. The bikes were all ready to go. And then the heavens opened and it rained for four hours. We lost the light and I was just like, we can't shoot in this because the light's not right. And eventually we got a day where we could shoot outside. But by then we'd already rewritten the scene and the weather hates me when I'm so I, yeah. I vow to never shoot anything outside in Manchester ever again I think we're going to announce what camera we're using do we yeah. know it's yeah. the Vericam 35 isn't it yeah there we go so we're going to be using the Verica, the Panasonic Vericam 35 which is a camera I've got some experience with at least because we used it for the last two films I did uh we could have used the Alexa but the Alexa's huge like it's too big and a lot of ours is going to be on you know, one of our camera team's shoulders and we don't want them to die. No. And it'd be good not to. Also, I feel the need to point out, uh, we are a base level team of four. Mm. So 
in terms of kit, we are slightly limited in terms of we need what we can like conceivably carry and transport on our own yes. as well. Like we have other people coming into the team to help, but like our team is just four people. Like as a as a producer who um as we've both agreed in the past is that the producer's role isn't just an organizer, they are a creative outlet yeah. as well. And you shouldn't just treat a producer as an organizer as a director because they've do- they've got the the brain that you don't have. <laughs> Think of them as a, another part of your brain that you need to yeah. be in sync with. But, you know, could you, like, maybe talk about your experience of being a woman in film? Because it's something that's yeah. it's something that's quite contentious at the moment in general. And the rise of female directors is fantastic and all. But I think female it's... producers, what's your take? <laughs> I think female producers is the most common. So I read this book called Backwards and in Heels, which is all about uh, women in the film industry through time. And it was simultaneously the most inspiring book I've read and the most depressing because it's still hard. Like Is the is the backwards and heels thing a quote about um Ginger Rogers and yeah, Fred Astaire. Yeah. Yeah. It's this book is amazing. This book was sort of a big deal to me in terms of going, Oh, I can actually have a career. Um, despite the fact that every person interviewed for the book was like, Yeah, it's gonna be harder. You will have to work harder than everybody else just because you're a woman. But producing is actually the predominant role of women in film. So it's either producing or editing because originally editing wasn't seen as like an art form. So they're mm. like, oh, just let the women do it. It it was seen as a process for a long time, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and Which is so annoying. So they were just like, oh yeah, women can do that because it doesn't matter. And I think this is where this whole thing about the director being the auteur comes from in yeah. a lot of ways. It's, I think the... I, I think... Uh, and you can probably, you know, disagree with me because I, I am who I am. <laughs> and I think the auteur theory is absolute bollocks. Oh, no, I completely and agree. it is just a, uh, like, a patriarchal kind of, not tool, but theory, where it says that, where it inherently kind of says that the vision of a great man at the front of a... Because auteur theory immediately stops getting applied to female directors. Yeah. I don't know if you've noticed, like, um, Sofia Coppola... Who did Lost in Translation? You don't, you know, you don't hear about Sofia Coppola, Coppola. Coppola, I always say it wrong. You don't hear about her too much in circles as an auteur, even though she is so definitely an auteur. If you look at her, but it's films, just because she's a woman. She's a woman, and the DOP gets the credit for how the films look. That is, and all that stuff, and it's like, come on. I think a lot of people who come into film believe in that, like film yeah. school especially. I think a lot, I've met a, a lot of young male directors who genuinely believe they are auteurs and working in a group with somebody who believes they're an auteur is very, is demotivating a word. Mm. It's very much just like, oh, okay, so I don't matter. Nothing I say actually matters to what is happening. Why do you think that producing is the predominant role for, why, why aren't there more female directors even though women have been in film for a very long time? That's, I think... That'll help. People will say, oh, women make better producers because they will treat a film like their baby and they will nurture it and look after it more. (laughs) I think women make... I think anyone who is organised makes a good producer. It isn't a thing of gender. It's if you can email and you can organise well, you can be a good producer. Um, (laughs) A lot of producing is emailing. Yeah, sometimes I do feel like... uh, Because I am the worst... uh, (laughs) emailing and i think there's a major part of your role with me especially is 
doing the emails that I'm too lazy to do. Yes, I... I've I'm sorry about that. It's okay. It is basically my job to just reply to emails, send more emails, reply to the ones I've just sent. Um, and that's fine. But I think saying that women make better producers is actually really patronising. Why does that... Like, the, the whole thing of the... Women would, women would make a good producer because it's baby. Yeah. But that could easily be applied to directing. Yes. Like... think right on a scale of confidence male confidence is way more than any female can get to and i don't know why and i may, this may be wrong and people might disagree with me and that's okay i think it's one of those things of like the world is very like for a long time uh men have i say this like i'm not a man <laughs> but like you know we men have had it that we feel like we should be listened to and that yeah. our ideas are sacred like all the great philosophers are men in a lot of men's eyes. There are fantastic female philosophers, yeah. But the ones that get quoted constantly, and the ones that are com- and the auteurs and the great people are always, always men first, women second. I think, yeah. In terms of being a woman in film, uh, it's hard. But I feel like this group is very much like a sort of dream in terms of that because I feel like I don't feel like the female producer. Look at me creating a safe space. Get <laughs> in. <laughs> I just feel like, oh, I'm in the group. Our process of filmmaking. So we've talked about the production design. Uh, do we? Do you want to talk about how you have approached the script? Because not only are you the director, you are also writing the right. script. Yeah. Well, the script, the script isn't really a script because of um, our lead actor's experience in performance. He's he's very much an improvisational actor who um, who plays within a scene. And so, my job in the writing process is to come up with a, a through line for the whole story because he can't make up the story for me. Give the actors direction to play and give them stuff they can play. And at the moment, it's it's a very enjoyable process. I. We haven't had the rehearsals yet. We may that may change, um, but normally when I come to write a script, it's a very different experience. Like, so last year again, referring to this film, um, I worked with a close friend of mine, and we wrote the script together, and that was the process that worked for him as the director and me as the writer. Um, and this is where the problems lied because my personal process is to be given, if I'm given an assignment or I have an idea, to go away and write the first draft on my own and then take changes and adjust it completely. Like, the first draft may not even make it anything from it to the final draft. Like, the script I wrote most recently for uh, screenwriting class is the same story, but it's different scenes entirely. It's a different part of the story, same characters. Like, writing is an incredibly, like, lonely process normally. And on this film, it's been very collaborative, which is weird. Like, it's a weird feeling having to constantly be aware of why I'm doing things, which is making me a more conscious writer, and it's making my actual behind-the-scenes writing better. It's making me understand actors a lot more as well. Like, having an actor who is so much readier to play things and play themes um, is just more 
more of a process of kind of fun <laughs> rather yeah. than sitting in your room and making yourself because I write sad films making yourself cry a lot about things because you have because you write from what you know and yeah. a lot of what I write comes from my memory so it's weird writing something that's not an experience I've had yeah. or people I know have had I need to find Larry and it's interesting it's heavily researched which is a new process for me actually googling things um one thing for me that i found really fun was um and we talked about this on the last podcast the process of writing out the different cards of like the different stories and i feel like i don't know if i was you i would have been like cool we're done not that it's written but like it's like you have kind of the bones i guess well, that's that the card process is if anybody who writes is listening to this knows about the card process or the post it note process where you where you put everything that could ever be in this story with every character onto a series of cards. And I think we've still got more cards to write personally, yeah. but I think keeping it 15 for a 15 minute film is enough. But you put them all on these cards and then you try find an order to them. And I like to do A1, A2, A3, B1, B2, like different storylines and see where they overlap and how I can tell it. And then I stick it on my wall and it stays there until I finish the film. And you look a bit crazy with yeah, string with on your... string <laughs> and um, big red lines through bits. And like, I remember my flat in first year, um, my girlfriend at the time came and said why have you got string and post-it notes are you planning a murder and I was like no it's just a film the way you talk about it is very much like is very interesting to me because I never really used the cards I which is probably why my scripts weren't that great I just was just like I know these characters and they're gonna go places I've always really enjoyed writing but I think I've never enjoyed it on a serious level I don't know if that makes sense to you. Like, I've enjoyed it in a personal way. Mm. And then when I've done it, tried to do it more seriously, it's been quite difficult. But I think working with you to develop the story, I'm like, oh, this is actually really fun. This well, isn't just, like, a really hard <laughs> shit thing. It's, it's, a, it's a hard shit thing for me a lot of the time, but I'm fine with it. <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? Like, I'm used to it at this point. Of, yeah. There's a, there's a famous writer who said, you know, when asked about his process, he said, "Well, I, I get a pen and I bleed." And oh, who was you, you? You know the quote as well, but yeah, like that's. I don't think I. I oh, it's I'm, Ernest Hemingway, of course it is. Yeah, I don't think I, I bleed onto the page. I just think that I've battered into myself a, like a firm process of working, and I think that only came to be a thing I did every time this year with uh, the screenwriting classes we did. Um, I think, and because you said you didn't want to, you didn't take them. I feel like you missed out a little bit. Yeah. But I, I wanted to go to your point. You said about writing for fun as opposed to writing for work. It's like you don't have to be writing for work to be a good writer. I think everybody should just write more. I think that yeah. if people understand stories more, they are more empathetic and they're more loving and they're more caring about people. I just think people should read and write more and try interpret their feelings through writing because it makes you understand when other people are being like that i don't know if i've told you this i kept a diary from when i was seven to 18 
Uh, I didn't purposefully stop. It's just I had less time. Um, and I really regret that I stopped writing because... And I didn't do it every day. I have, like, so much that I've written about my life. And one day I can go back and I reckon there is some films in there. There's a, there's a story, like... As, as we've, We said this in the last episode that we love the films about real people. Yeah. And about, you know, stories that are real. Like, I do love Wes Anderson films. I think they... But they are about real people, just in a different sense. Like, The Lobster is about real people. Yeah. But it's not actually it's just making comment on it and i think having a diary is a great way i i write every day now um about what happened in the day it's not i'm not calling it a diary it's a diary but um (laughs) you write every day and it kind of puts everything into perspective and it makes it easier to kind of like avoid those moments where you feel frustrated upset or angry or you know for no reason i used to read loads i used to read fiction it used to be trash fiction that's fine reading anything is good so my mom's an english teacher so i books are a big part of your yeah, life. yeah books are a massive part of like the way that i relate to my parents and i recently started reading a lot more and i'm like oh i feel better like not not that i was feeling bad before but you just i i can't describe it it's just like it's time it's, it's it's weird it's time alone with yourself that you're yeah. not worried about anything other than what's going on in the book yeah and like too often you can be spending time on your own and just feeling like awful because of overthinking things yeah. that happen. Reading a book is just like time with yourself where you're not realising that you're spending time on yourself. Yeah. And that's really lovely. And I think more people should read and write stories for that reason. Like we live in an age where it's so much easier to consume content on your phone and read it. And I'm not being like that boomer being like <laughs> Kids always on the phones. These millennials on their phone. But, you know, like, it's just like, I'm aware of it. It's like, I spend a lot more time watching YouTube than I will Mm -hmm. ever do reading a book now. We're living in an age of constant instant gratification, but it's like, reading a book is just so worthwhile and we just don't do it because it's easier to play a video game. And I see a lot of kids who don't read. flabbergast me any time that I bring up Larry Walters that no yeah. people don't know who he is it's like this guy is someone everyone should know about but we don't for some reason we're not because he's just a, he's just a normal guy but that's what is so amazing about him and that's well, what's so important when I was when I was working with John yesterday we were talking about like what's the you know we've got the thing he needs to play but what's the what's the theme of the film and we've got all these themes but I think it's like I think it's questioning what a true hero is. Yeah. You know, he's my hero, but is he also? Like, and it's kind of this thing of, like, America has this culture of the American dream of being told you can have whatever you want whenever you want it, and you ha- you just have to work hard, knuckle down, blue-collar America, we built this country. And yeah. that's the thing, it's the, it's the inherent irony in the American dream is what Larry is straddling constantly yeah he has been brought up as a white man in america who wanted to be a pilot because his dad was a pilot but as soon as he started wanting to be a pilot there were new rules to how you could become a pilot you had to have a certain number of years of military training and you had to be able to see which is you know fair enough you need to be able to see to be a pilot yeah but 
most pilots wear sunglasses. You could just have like prescription just sunglasses, sunglasses lens. Yeah. Being colorblind is a reason why my dad couldn't be a pilot ever because <laughs> being colorblind is a bat is actually yeah. really hard. These new lenses correct that, and I've like it's changed everything. It's made the world look like HD. That's like, wild. Like, or what I'm told HD. Like, what I was told, <laughs> this is HD. I was like, it's sharper, yeah, but, you know, the colours are still weird. Back to Larry. Larry has this kind of... He's brought up on the American dream, but he at every step of trying to achieve this dream, and his American dream is to fly, yeah. he is told, you can't, you can't, you can't, because of this, because of this, because of this, because you are not meant to. You should just be a truck driver. You should just be this person. He meets Carol, who says, no, I see your dream. And that's why they that are together. Nearly makes me cry, but it's just like <laughs> I very easily cry at things. But just like <laughs> in my brain, it's the moment we're in Planet of the Apes where he's like, "I see." You. <laughs> yeah, and that's like... amazing. <laughs> Him and Carol then hatch this plan, and they are like they properly plan it. I don't think Larry has properly planned it until he meets Carol now. Yeah, like I, I think Carol is there to go. Okay, I know you've got this dream, and I know you've got a vague idea of how you're going to do it. But let's do it. Let's make it happen. Because she wants to go up with him. We will never know what the truth is, but this is the truth as we've decided it. So it's based on the true events of Larry Walter's life. And so he goes up and he's made, he does this thing that he's dreamed of and he achieves the American dream, whatever that is. He lands, he does these interviews and he's made to look a fool. Yeah. He's mocked and... He doesn't get the support from the only person who would support him because he was selfish. So he ends up alone. And the thing is, is that he's always been obsessed with heroes. But the thing is, though, he's always known that heroes die. You can only die to be a hero. His dad was a hero, but he was dead. The sad thing about Larry Waters' life is that he realises something while he's... And and this is what the film is hopefully going to be about. It's about he realises while he's up there that he doesn't know like he thinks he knows and when he's up there he doesn't know fundamentally he has that confidence completely stripped from under him and he has to land and he has to be okay with it yeah because he has to come down at some point at some point and he realizes that heroes the own the only heroes that are in his stories are dead ones and that's really sad that's the story we're trying to tell um yeah we've we've ended up uh going from the process of filmmaking to telling trying to give an insight into the story that's i think that's, that's today's all we got. podcast uh check out our gofundme and facebook page and instagram page please give us money so we can make <laughs> this film great hopefully we've sold it to you a little bit more <laughs>